Welcome to the sermon podcast of Old Bridge Baptist Church. Our mission at OBBC is to make disciples of Christ who connect with God, others, ministry, and the lost. We pray that the following sermon will encourage you in your walk with Christ today. Visit us on the web anytime at obb.church. Well, at the outset of the American Civil War, many people mistakenly thought that the, the northern army would quickly conquer the southern army and, and teach them a lesson. Right? They thought that victory was going to be swift, that the outcome was sure, and that the rebellion would be quickly put down. They couldn't be more wrong. Dave Harvey recounts this now famous event. Uh, he writes, July 21st, 1861, the first major battle of the Civil War started before dawn. The roar of the artillery seemed to awaken everyone in Virginia as the Union and Confederate armies clashed among the farms by a stream called Bull Run. But a strange thing happened as the battle intensified. Hundreds of Washingtonians, senators, representatives, government workers, and their families, all dressed in leisure apparel and carrying picnic baskets, raced to the hill near Manassas to watch the battle unfold. Armed with opera glasses to survey the fighting, they chatted amicably as men were slaughtered on the fields below. One northern sympathizer commented, quote, this is splendid, oh my, is not, is not that fir- first rate? I guess we will be in Richmond by this time tomorrow. Spirits were high, toasts were raised, All in all, they thought it a superb way to spend a summer afternoon. But suddenly, a rebel counterattack led by a hard-charging cavalry swept over the Union flank, putting the army to flight. Even to untrained eyes, the implications were obvious. The serene picnic ground was about to become a battle zone. Mass confusion erupted as the spectators fled just moments before the Confederate wave washed over the hill. The entertainment was over. The battle was upon them. Really happened. Pride leads us to underestimate the reality and cost of war. We often envision war to be a light and momentary thing leading to swift victory, but the reality is usually just the opposite. I think the same thing often happens when we come to Christ. We, we tend to expect a triumphant and easy march to, to new levels of holiness and sanctification. But in reality, the path of sanctification is a struggle. It's a battlefield, really. Though Christ has won the d- decisive victory, and his ultimate final victory is sure, we find ourselves suddenly in, in the heat of battle, don't we? In the spiritual battle. And many of us mistakenly approach this spiritual battle like those northern aristocrats, thinking we'll picnic in safety and never really enter the fray. But we shouldn't be so proud or naive. Your sanctification is going to be a struggle. Paul describes this reality in our text today from a very personal point of view. My my first point here is is 
noticing from this passage that there is a part of Paul that genuinely desires to serve God. You notice that throughout this passage. Paul describes repeatedly that there's part of him in his inner man, his inner person, that genuinely desires to serve God. And you'll, you'll see if you read through this passage that was just read, Romans chapter 7, beginning in verse 13, you'll see repeated again and again this notion. And, and, and Paul says it both negatively and positively. So, for example, Paul expresses that he does not want to sin. In fact, that he hates the sinful desires and deeds of his flesh. Look, for example, at verse 15. Paul says, For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. This is a man expressing, in, in, in a negative way in this instance, man, I don't do what I want to do. Right? He's, but he's expressing that desire to do what God wants him to do. He also expresses this positively. Paul says that he wants to do what's good and right that, and that which pleases God. Look at verse 18. Paul says, For I have the desire to do what is right. Verse 19, For I do not do the good I want. Verse 21, So I find it to be a law that when I want to do the right... And I think the, the most poignant verse here is verse 22, where Paul says, For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. In my inner being. Verse 25, he says, So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind. So you can see all over this passage the evidence that part of Paul, deep down, really longs and desires to serve God. And yet... We also see in this passage that there is a part of Paul that still frustratingly desires to sin. Even though Paul delights in the law of God and his inner being and serves the law of God with his, with his mind, there still remains in him the indwelling presence of sin in his flesh. And it's a maddening presence of evil in his life. Look at verse 17. Paul says, so now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. We don't just live in a, a sinful environment. Sin is not just out there. We can't just lock the doors. You know, the first, first thing I do before, as I start to head to bed every night, is I go around and I double check all the doors. I even check my garage door. You know, I open up the door and look out and make sure that garage door is down and I try to lock out all the evil for the night before I go to bed. Well what Paul is saying here is that he you can't just lock the evil out of your life because guess what? When you lock the evil out of your life you look within and, and guess what? The, the evil is right there within you. It dwells inside of you, Paul says in verse 17. So, so now it is no longer I who do it but sin that dwells in me. We can't just lock it out. Sin is in the house. It is within us. Look at verse 21 here. To me, this is one of the most interesting expressions here. In verse 21, Paul says, So I find it to be a law or a principle that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. 
And then he goes on to describe this, this battle within him in, in the terms of a war. In verse 22, he says, For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, verse 23, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. It's a war. It's a spiritual battle. One commentator said it this way. He said, I feel like a prisoner who has been set free and has crossed into friendly territory, but the enemy troops keep coming over the border and kidnapping me back to my old prison. Can you identify with that? So now, as we observe this in in the life of the Apostle Paul, we see that he has this desire to do what's right on the one hand, and then, on the other hand, he has this, this, this ongoing desire to, to do that which is wrong. I think the question that, that many people ask when they come to this text is, is this Paul describing his own mature Christian experience as an apostle as, at the time of writing the book of Romans? Kind of near the end of his life. Is this Paul expressing this as a Christian, or is he speaking perhaps role-playing almost almost like earlier in his life as an immature Christian? Or is this Paul even, even speaking as an unbeliever would speak? That's one of the, the main questions you have to wrestle with when you read this text. Is Paul speaking of himself? Is he speaking of himself as a mature Christian, as an immature Christian, or even as an unbeliever? And there's plenty of reason for the confusion here, because Paul describes a very negative experience, doesn't he? He describes here in verse 14 in particular, he says that he is of the flesh, sold under sin. And that would seem to almost contradict what he's been saying in Romans chapter 6, where he says we are you know, no longer slaves to sin. And just in general, Paul seems defeated and powerless. He seems impotent to do the good that he wants to do. In verse 21, Paul says, evil is right there beside me. Verse 23, he says, he is captive to the law of sin that dwells in his members. In verse 24, he calls himself a wretched man. Does this describe a mature Christian man that Paul has become? Or does this describe some other stage in his spiritual journey? Well, there are five reasons why I believe that even though there are some negative elements to this text, I believe that Paul is actually describing the Christian's ongoing struggle with indwelling sin. And we see that, I think, from this text that this can sometimes be an agonizing process of sanctification. So let me give you those five reasons why I believe Paul is speaking here as a mature Christian and really expressing a a Christian experience. So, first of all, this may be obvious, but I'm going to state it. Paul is speaking in the present tense. He's speaking in the present tense. The grammar of the passage is is very important. You know, in our, our passage last week in verses 7 through 12, Paul did not speak in the present tense. He spoke in the past tense as he was describing sort of becoming aware of God's law and how as he became aware of the knowledge of his sin then that sin put him to death Paul speaks in the past tense of that but now as we 
coming to, into this week's passage, Paul pivots and begins to, begins to speak in, in the present tense. In fact, you know, as, a, as a, uh, someone who studies Greek in, in Bible college and seminary, this is one of the passages you love to translate because it's all in the first person, singular, present tense. It's like the, the, the form of the word that you study that's in the dictionary, right? It's just super easy to translate Paul is speaking in the present tense. And um, I think the normal assumption when a person refers to themselves in the present tense is that they're speaking of their current reality. I mean, that's just the, the most obvious thing when, you, when someone's speaking in the present tense, you just immediately assume, hey, they're talking about something that's going on right now in their life. And I think the only reason to, to think otherwise is if, if you think that someone like Paul, you think, man, the Apostle Paul, surely he's moved beyond this by now. Right? So then you begin to perhaps think about, how can I explain this in another way? But I, I think the, the simplest, you know, when you read the Bible and, you, and you, you read here that Paul's speaking of himself in the present tense, that simple reading, I think, gives you the best answer. Paul is speaking of himself in the present tense. Secondly, Paul describes his inner delight in God's will. I suppose there's a way in which an unbeliever could in some ways, delight in the Word of God. The, the, you know, there's some poetry to it. There's some wisdom to be gleaned. But the type of delight that Paul describes here in this passage, in, in the Word of God, in the Law of God, he speaks of delighting in God's Word and God's Law in his inner man. Something very deep within him. And if you contrast that with what Paul says elsewhere in this letter, for example, in the very next chapter, Paul says in, in Romans 8, chapter 8, in verse 7 as well, he says, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. When you're hostile to God, you don't delight in His Word, right? The mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot those who are in the flesh cannot please God. That's what Paul says. But what we see here in, in this passage is something completely different. It's a picture of someone who genuinely delights from the inside to delight in, in knowing and doing God's will. And an unbeliever doesn't do that. Thirdly, Paul distinguishes himself from his flesh, which is a very interesting thing. This is not, in, in my estimation, this is not a description of someone who is aligned with his flesh. This is the, the description of someone who is at war with his flesh. Paul repeatedly distances himself from the ongoing sinful actions of his flesh, saying, hey, that no longer reflects who I am. Look at verses 16 and 17 here. Paul says, Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good, so now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. Can you Im imagine an unbeliever saying that, that? That, hey, I delight in God's word and, and the remaining sin that's in my life, it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. That's not the description of an unbeliever. In my estimation, that's the description of a believer who is struggling against sin. And Paul would, by the way, he would never, in distancing himself from his sin, he would never want us to take that kind of an argument and use it as an excuse for sin. He's not saying, hey, 
here's me over here, there's this part of me that loves God, and then there's this fleshly part of me that goes on and sins, and I know it's sinning, and, and just sort of using that as an excuse to live in sin. That's, that's not what Paul's saying. In, in fact, really, in saying what he just said, Paul could have got, launched off into another argument where he clarified that, and I think he would have said once again, may it never be. Uh, you know, may I never use that kind of an argument to justify sinful behavior. But I think what Paul's describing here is, is that there is now within him not just sinful desires of the old man, but he also now finds within him new godly desires that are now at war with those old fleshly desires. Thomas Chalmers used to speak of the expulsive power of a new affection. When God's Spirit delivers us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of His beloved Son, we are given a new set of, flesh, of, of spiritual desires from the heart, from the inside out. And those new affections for God begin to expel the old fleshly desires. But it doesn't happen all the time in a moment. Sometimes it does happen in a moment. Sometimes God does deliver you from an old temptation or an old struggle and you come to Christ and you never struggle with it again. But there also remains within us many of the old desires that, that the uh, Spirit of God begins to work on over time, begins to slowly expel those desires from us. And I think that's the picture that we have here in Romans chapter 7. And so when Paul speaks of himself as of the flesh, being of the flesh in verse 14, sold into sin, I think we can say that Paul was not, speaking in the present tense, he was not referring to the totality of himself. But he was acknowledging that there did, does remain a, a part of him in his fleshliness, in his sinful nature. There remains a part of him that is sold into sin. I love outdoor preaching. I really do. Even with all the distractions, it, it, it never gets boring. So what we see here is that Paul distinguishes himself from the flesh. And I think, once again, like I said, this is evidence of a Christian desire. Fourthly here, I really struggled with, with knowing how to express this one, but let me just say it here. Verse 25b comes after 25a. And I'm going to explain that here. Let's assume for a moment that in this passage, Paul is giving voice to himself as an unbeliever. That he, in some sense, as a, as a Pharisee, as a, as a Jew, did in some sense delight in the law and yet was powerless to obey it. And then by the time he gets down to verse 24, he's expressing as an unbeliever his lostness. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And then he gives the answer in verse 25. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. I think this would now be, if you, if you picture this, this passage like this, this is almost like Paul's salvation moment. Right? He's describing for you, hey, I'm struggling. I want to do what's right, but I can't because I'm, a, I'm lost. I'm a sinner. 
Who will save me? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ. It's a moment of salvation. That's verse 25a. But then, you go on to verse 25b, <laughs> the second half of the verse. And what does Paul do? You would expect him, after this moment of giving thanks that God has delivered him from all this stuff he's talking about in Romans 7, from this struggle with his flesh, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, and you would expect him to then go on to these sunlit lands where he no longer struggles with sin. But that's not what he does in 25b. He, what does he say? He says, So then, I myself serve the, serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. He returns again to a summary statement of the struggle. I, 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 what I believe is going on here is that this isn't Paul expressing himself as an unbeliever, but it's him expressing the spiritual struggle of a believer, crying out from time to time as he struggles with his sin, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of flesh? Even as, as Christians, we are still yet looking forward to the day when we will no longer have to struggle with sin, but this body of flesh will be laid aside in the grave. And on, the, on resurrection morning, Jesus will, with, a, with a, a simple word, call us forth, and we will rise again, never to sin again. And that is what Paul's looking forward to here. When he says, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me? He is looking forward to that day of final deliverance from his sin. And that's a day that, that we all look forward to in the present tense as Christians. And fifthly here, if I were to give you one more reason, I think it's simply this. If we're honest, Romans chapter 7 matches our own experience. Doesn't it? I think sometimes we, we wrestle with the idea of someone like the Apostle Paul having this kind of a, an experience, but we shouldn't. He was just a man, just like you and me. But if we're honest, Romans 7 not only reflected the Apostle Paul's experience, but it reflects our experience too. I think Romans 7.24 is something that we can all, from our hearts, at, from time to time, really identify with, that, that we have prayed this prayer, Lord, wretched man or woman that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And it points you again to, to Jesus. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. The, we have this great hope of a coming deliverance, and it, this matches our experience. Now, don't get me wrong. I don't think Romans chapter 7 is the totality of what it means to be a Christian. Right? We, don't wanna, we really don't want to live in Romans 7.24. I'm not saying we want to live in defeat or that being a Christian is being constantly wretched and constantly defeated. No, we want to read Romans chapter 7 alongside of Romans chapter 8, which is full of a lot of victory and triumph and hope. But I think if we try to separate these things, if we only if we say, hey, Romans chapter 7, that's, that's a struggle of an unbeliever, but man, Romans chapter 8, that's for the believer, then we get this, this idea that, that we are um, always living in triumph. We are already perfect. There's no struggle. And I think if we were honest, we would say, no, 
The Christian experience is both at times Romans chapter 7 in the valley when we stumble and we fall and we cry out, wretched man that I am, Lord, deliver me. And also Romans chapter 8, full of victory, and, and there's a battle plan there for how to live in victory. And so we're going to be getting into that in the next couple of weeks. We're going to be talking about how not to live in Romans chapter 7, but how to hopefully live in, in victory and to progress in your sanctification. But we don't want to dismiss this as something that is unimportant to us or detached from our experience. I think we can identify with it very much. So that's my big idea this morning for you. Something I want you to walk away from this sermon with is that your sanctification is going to be a gut-wrenching process. It's a battle. It's a spiritual war waged between the old man, the old woman, and the new man, the new woman. And it can be excruciating at times. It can cause us to cry out, wretched person that I am, who will deliver me? And again, we, we shouldn't be surprised or alarmed by this cry coming from a mature Christian. In fact, I would say that when we come together as a church, we don't want to posture as if we have it all together, that we've already arrived. Hey, I'm already perfect. Right? And I'm here to help all the rest of you here at church who are still struggling. Right? We don't want to, we don't want to have that kind of posture. No, we... We're coming together as those, like Romans chapter 7, verse 24, we are wretched sinners struggling with our sin. There are people here this morning, there is myself here this morning, who has struggled with sin this week. And I'm looking to Jesus for grace and for help and for victory. And so we want to we have that kind of an attitude. And I want to encourage you this morning. You know, um, Christopher Ashe, one of the commentators I read, he had, he had this to say, and I thought it was really a, a helpful instruction for us. He said this, The struggle, and by that he means the spiritual struggle of Romans 7, the struggle is a sign of spiritual life. The struggle itself is a sign of spiritual life. He writes, Before I was converted, my pathetic attempts to turn over a new leaf cost little and lasted less. As the Spirit gives me strength to struggle, it hurts much more. And then he gives this helpful illustration. He said, two spies are captured. The one who resists torture suffers far more than the one who tells all at the first turn of the screw. Right? If you resist the temptation, if you resist the sin, you're going to feel the struggle more than if you just give in to your flesh. John Piper once told this little parable that I think he made up that illustrates this point even further, and I'm just going to read it for you here this morning. There are three people, and each of the three stands beside a pit of lewdness and sin. Three ropes extend out of the pit, one bound around each person's waist, and the strength of this narrow cord is 100-pound test. Can you picture this? Three men standing beside a pit uh, that represents sin and lewdness. And out of the pit are these cords of a hundred pound test tied around their waist. The first man begins to be pulled into the pit that looks exciting, but he knows it is deadly. Five pounds of pressure, ten pounds, fifteen pounds, he resists and fights back. Twenty pounds, twenty-five pounds, he digs in his heels with all his might. 30 pounds, 35 pounds, 
and the rope starts to squeeze. And so he stops resisting and jumps into the pit. The second man begins to be pulled into the pit. Five pounds of pressure, 10 pounds, 15 pounds, he resists and fights back. 20 pounds, 25 pounds, he digs in his heels. 30 pounds, 35 pounds, and the rope starts to squeeze. He says, no, and he fights back. 40 pounds, 45 pounds, 50 pounds, 55 pounds. He says, it's harder to breathe as the rope tightens around his stomach and it begins to hurt. 60 pounds, and he stops resisting and jumps into the pit. Now the third man begins to be pulled into the pit. 5, 10, 15, 20, 25 pounds of pressure, he resists and fights back. 30, 35, 40, and the rope starts to squeeze. He says no and fights back. 50 pounds, 60. It's harder to breathe as the rope tightens around his stomach and begins to hurt. 70 pounds, and his feet start to slip toward the pit. He cries out for help and reaches out to grab a branch shaped like a cross. In the distance, he sees his wife going about her business, trusting him. He sees his children playing and in their hearts admiring him. And beyond them all, he sees Jesus Christ with a gash in his side, standing with both hands lifted and fists clenched and smiling in the distance. And filled with passion, the third man holds fast. Seventy-five. Eighty. Eighty-five pounds. And the rope cuts into his sides and the pain stabs. Ninety, ninety-five, and the tears flow unbidden down his cheeks. One hundred. And the rope snaps. And the question for you is this. Which one of these men knows the full power of temptation? Now, I'll add to this parable a question of my own from our text this morning. Which man is most likely to identify with Romans 7, 24, and 25? Which one is most likely to cry, how wretched man that I am, as he daily is actually in the fight, actually struggling with his sin? Is it not the Christian who is, who is fighting, who is longing to... to, to to walk in the ways of God and to be sanctified and to be holy and says, Lord, deliver me. I am wretched in this battle. Lord, deliver me from my sin. I think what Paul describes here, as I've said again and again, is the struggle of that third man, the mature Christian. And, and so in, in an attempt to apply this to our lives, I just have four quick points of application and then I'll bring us to a close. I think the first point of application is this. Christian, you need to understand this principle that I've been talking about. You need to understand that the normal Christian life includes both incredible sweetness, incredible victory, incredible triumph. As we saw at the beginning of Romans chapter 7, uh, we, were, we were exulting in the fact that we're no longer under the law, but we've died to that, and we're now, we've been united to another, we've been united to Christ, and it's, there's a sweetness there, and we're bearing fruit that we never could bear on our own. That's a wonderful thing. But also, the Christian life includes not only this incredible sweetness, but it also includes an incredible struggle, and you need to realize, you need to not be like those northern aristocrats sitting on the hillside. 
thinking that there's not going to be a, a battle, there, there's not going to be a struggle. This is the normal Christian life, and you need to realize that. That's, that's application point number one. Secondly, you need to understand clearly the answer to the question that Paul asks in Romans 7.24. Paul asks a question. He says, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? You need to know, Christian, clearly in your heart and in your mind that the answer to your sinful struggle is not you. And it is not the law. It is Jesus Christ. Paul lays out just a wonderful example here of someone who is wretched in the struggle. He asks who it is that can deliver him. And he gives thanks in the right direction. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Robert Murray McChaney once said, For every one look at yourself... Make ten looks at Christ. Right, we need to look to Him. He is the answer in the struggle. It, it, it does not lie primarily in yourself. The answer is Jesus Christ. And, and I think as Christians who are, who are struggling with sin week in and week out, I think we can be encouraged as we look ahead to that coming day when we will finally be delivered. Right? Be encouraged by that this week, Christian. There will come a day where your struggle with your sin will be laid aside. I came across this quote from the unparalleled Charles Spurgeon this week, Prince of Preachers, and he, he said, said this way in a way that I could never say it, so I'm just going to read it to you here sort of exulting in this coming day where we will lay aside our flesh and no longer sin. He said this, what a, what a mercy it is that the Lord Jesus has struck a deadly blow at our sin. He has broken the head of it. It is a monster. It has immense vitality, but it is broken-backed, broken-legged, broken-headed monster. And there it is. It lies hissing and spitting and writhing capable of doing as much mischief. But he that wounded it will smite it again and again until at last it shall utterly die. And thank God it has not vitality enough to get across the River Jordan. No sinful desire shall ever swim on that shore. Amen? Thirdly, third point of application... Don't make peace with your sin. Make war. You know, as Christians, we, we often preach the gospel and we instruct others to repent of their sins and be saved and to place their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And I would say that to you this morning, that if you have come here this morning and you're struggling with sin in your life and you know that you're a sinner, that's good news because you have an opportunity to turn to someone who can deliver you from your sins. And you can repent of your sins... Be saved today. Place your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. But Christian, we not only tell other people to repent of their sins, but we are to walk in repentance. And that includes entering the struggle of Romans chapter 7. You need to make war with your sin. Don't make peace with it. If you say, well, I can't really identify with Romans chapter 7, 
you know, I, I came to Christ and things, you know, I'm a pretty good person now, you know? I would say you might be one of those northern aristocrats sitting on the hillside. You need to, to get in the battle and make war with your sin. And we're going to be talking about that more as we enter into Romans chapter 8. In fact, in Romans 8, Paul is going to say, uh, to, he's going to instruct us to actually put to death the deeds of the body. We're going to be talking about mortifying the flesh. And so don't make peace with your sin, make war. And lastly here, and fourthly, if you have stumbled this week in your Christian walk, let me encourage you to get back up and to keep on walking. I want to reemphasize Christopher Ashe's quote here that the struggle is a sign of spiritual life. What do you call a person that, that falls over and doesn't get up? What do you call them? They're dead, right? <laughs> you are not of the spiritually dead. You are alive. If you fall down, get back up in the power of the Spirit and the forgiveness of, of Jesus Christ and keep walking towards the goal, the, the high calling of Jesus Christ. Keep walking. You know, it, it's so easy to get discouraged when you've stumbled and fallen again for the hundredth time. And, and you might think, hey, I really ought to be running by now, and here I can barely walk. Well, let me encourage you to, to get back up and keep walking in the Spirit. Christopher Ashe had an illustration of this, and I'll close with this. He said, when a child begins to walk, the wonder is not that they sometimes fall, but that they have begun to take their first steps at all. Right? When you think back to when your when your child was first began to walk. They might take a, a step or two and then fall down, right? And you don't say, "Oh, look, they fell down again." Can you believe that? No, you say, "Wow, honey, come here. Look. They took a couple steps." And you're taking pictures and videos of it. And then you encourage what do you do to your child? You come to them and you encourage them, "Get up and keep going. Keep walking." Right, that's, that is a picture of, of the Christian walk. Though you have stumbled, though you have stumbled many times, rest in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Repent of your sins, and in faith, get up and walk in newness of life. And over time, the, the Holy Spirit will sanctify you. He will set you apart, and He will grow you into Christ's likeness. Let me close this in the word of prayer. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word, which encourages us. We thank you for your grace, which covers us when we sin. And Father, we pray now that um, as we seek to apply this word to our lives, God, uh, we pray that you would give us grace again this week. Lord, there are some here that have stumbled and, Lord, need a word of grace to stand back up and to keep going. Lord, there are those that have, have never repented, never trusted in you, God, and they're, they've been resisting you, Lord, for some time. Father, I pray that you would lead them to full repentance and faith in you and new life and a new hope. And Father, we, we pray that you would give us strength for the spiritual battle this week. Lord, though sometimes we cry out that we are wretched, 
Lord, we know and we believe that we have ultimate deliverance through Jesus Christ our Lord. And so, Lord, finally, I, I just simply give you thanks. Thank you, Lord, for delivering us. Lord, as we transition now to a time of remembering your Son through communion, Father, I pray that you would refresh your people and that we would rest in, and boast in nothing else but the shed blood of Jesus Christ and his body broken for us. We thank you now, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.